You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On this episode, I sat down with my co-host and technical accounting mastermind, Adam Olson, to talk about business combinations. I once asked Adam what his favorite accounting standard is, mostly because I knew he would have an answer. And he said ASC 805 because business combinations offer so much variety and complexity. Since this is a complex topic with more variety than your favorite Halloween candy bag, we simply scratched the surface here. Hopefully we'll be able to do more episodes in the future, but if you have an itch to learn more now, you can check out our blog post called Purchase Accounting, Adjustments, and Accounting for M&As. And now let's get to the episode. This is Sarah Cage, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader. And today we are hitting the highlights on a topic that, while popular, also has a lot of accounting complexity, business combinations. And even though we're just going to do an overview, there is a ton to cover and probably a million other episodes we could and may make. So let's get started. Adam, could you tell us what exactly is a business combination? Sure. Yeah. So a business combination basically is a transaction where one company, the known as the acquirer, obtains control of one or more businesses. So there's a couple keywords in that definition that really mm-hmm. come into play: control and business. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on those definitions? What do you mean when you say control? Yeah. So control really has to do with um, a financial interest that an acquirer has in a business. Mm-hmm. And so the definition of control is the same definition that we see in ASC 810, which is the consolidation standard. And really, under that guidance, control either falls under one of two models that you evaluate. So it's either this variable interest model, which can be, you know, a pain to navigate through, or it's this voting interest model. So, you know, majority of the voting rights to gain control of the business. Okay. And how would you define business in this case? You know, there's specific things to think about when you're looking at um, whether or not a transaction is a business. Mm-hmm. You know, businesses basically have three distinct elements, inputs, processes, and outputs. Although, you know, outputs are not required for an entity to be considered a business. And there's separate guidance that you have to evaluate when outputs are not present. Um, but the evaluation of that um, will tell you whether or not a transaction is a business. Okay. We'll come back to those later. We'll dig in. <laughs> it's a lot. How about, are there any instances when an acquisition would not be considered a business combination? Yeah. The guidance is specific about, you know, if you create a joint venture, for instance, um, joint ventures are outside the scope of the business combination guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, also, entities that combine that are under common control. So if a parent mm-hmm. combines two of its subsidiaries together, you don't apply the business combination guidance. And mm-hmm. then... Kind of lastly, there is um, a transaction that's considered an acquisition of assets. So in other words, the transaction does not constitute a business and it's an asset acquisition that would also not apply the business combination guidance. Okay, so those sound kind of similar, the asset acquisition and the business combination. How would you kind of tease that out and distinguish them a little bit more? Yeah, I think this confuses sometimes preparers, um, especially when Mm -hmm. a lot of times those transaction agreements will be like an asset purchase agreement, right? It'll state that, but it's technically a business combination. So 
it really comes down to like kind of this two-step test that you have to apply. Uh So this was, you know, recently changed a few years ago. You know, the FASB essentially added what's known as this step one kind of screen test, which basically asked you to look at whether all of the value or substantially all of the value of the transaction is concentrated in a single asset or group of similar assets. Um, if that is true in that initial screen, then the, the transaction is automatically an asset acquisition. If that screen test is not met, then you move into the traditional definition of a business that we touched on briefly, and you evaluate whether or not um, the transaction has all those elements to be considered a business. So it could also not meet the definition of a business and not rather it could not meet the screen test. Then you move into step two and not meet the definition of business and still be an asset acquisition. There's a lot of things you got to and it's important to get right because the accounting between the two is you know, vastly different. Yeah. So if you're oh, yeah. you're stepping into the wrong model, you're going to end up with completely <laughs> incorrect results. So it's yeah. important that, you know, you don't just kind of skirt by and assume, you know, that you want a certain accounting outcome without actually applying the guidance. Yeah. Going in with your preset of assumptions, <laughs> like I want this to be an acquisition. Can you walk us through an example of what it looks like to apply the screen test? Yes. You know, like I said, it's it's really put in place to help simplify things, make things a little bit less effort, reduce some costs and complexity by allowing companies to automatically kind of skip going through the business combination guidance mm-hmm. if that if they determine that that substantially all threshold is kind of met. But it's basically broken down into like four kind of key steps. It's looking at all your different identifiable assets that might be single identifiable assets. Mm-hmm. You look at whether there's any assets in the group that you would combine that might be similar. Um, Then you kind of measure the fair value of each of those assets, either single assets or group of similar assets. And you determine, is there one single asset or one group of similar assets that basically makes up the majority of the, uh, or substantially all of the the value of the transaction itself. Um, And so it really has to do with this substantially all kind Mm -hmm. of definition. FASB's new favorite, is it FASB, right? Yeah, their new favorite little term <laughs> is substantially all. Yeah, so, you know, in practice, it's basically saying is the fair value of that one asset essentially, you know, in practice, people use 90%. You know, there's no bright line, but roughly around 90% yeah. of the value of all the assets is concentrated in either one asset or a group of similar assets. That would trigger the threshold to say that this is an asset acquisition. Okay. And so they go through the steps, they do the screen test, and if those criteria aren't met, they would then fall into that business category. And we kind of circle back to your output, input, and processes. Correct, yeah, so they would they would go back to then evaluating under the traditional, does this meet the definition of a business? Okay. So it's screen test and then pass that, yes or no. If you don't meet the screen test, then you move in definition of business. Does this transaction meet the definition? And so that is the inputs, the processes, and um, the outputs because mm-hmm. the you know gap will tell you that a business consists of inputs and processes that essentially work together to create outputs. Um, inputs are things like economic resources that the entity creates or has the ability to create. And you know they could be things like your long-lived assets, your intangible assets, intellectual property, things like that processes, you know, kind of what it says it is, is kind of what it is. These are your systems, standards, protocols, your management operational type processes. Um, You wouldn't consider like administrative type processes as something 
um, that meets this thing. So you would need something besides just kind of your, you know, billing payroll type stuff. You would need some type of actual operational type process that was acquired with the with the set. Um, and then outputs obviously is the result of the inputs and the processes applied together. Um, and so outputs can be creation of goods and services that you sell. It can be investment income. It can be you know other types of revenues, things like that. So it sounds like those guys who push the carts around the street <laughs> and like hand out chips. That's would still qualify as a business. They have their processes of going down their neighborhoods. Yep. And I, and just to clarify that, I, we kind of touched on it, but not every transaction has to have outputs. Like you mm. could acquire a company, for example, that might be early stage or pre-revenue yeah. um, that potentially could meet the definition of a business, but there's different guidance you would have to apply. Like would pharmaceuticals maybe like that are in early stages, they're not necessarily putting it out, but they're trying to create something yeah it could be and a lot of times those even those pharmaceutical acquisitions depending on what was acquired sometimes they'll even meet that screen test because you're really just buying like Hmm. the research or something like that so you may may actually qualify as an asset acquisition but assuming it didn't though you know that would be an example where obviously they're not generating any revenues but do they have the ability to create revenues eventually. So there's there's different guidance that you have to apply there. Mostly it's looking at whether or not, you know, you also got employees that could be considered an organized workforce and those employees have the right skills and knowledge and whatever um, that they could essentially create outputs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing that has to be looked at. Okay. So we cover all of that. We meet the definition of a business. What's the next step? Yeah, so if you have a, you meet the definition of a business, then you are within the scope of ASC 805, the business combination mm-hmm. guidance. And so um, the company will then have to apply what's known as the acquisition method, mm-hmm. um, which is basically broken down into kind of four key steps. Step one is identifying who the acquirer is. Step two is what is the acquisition date. Step three is recognizing and measuring any identifiable assets acquired or liabilities assumed mm-hmm. and potentially any non-controlling interest. And then step four is essentially recognizing goodwill or a bargain purchase gain in some cases. Okay. It might be helpful to take these one at a time and kind of go through each one. <laughs> sure. Um, so let's start with the first one you said, which is identifying the acquirer, which you would think would be pretty simple. Is that true? Is there? I'm, there's always some caveat. Yeah, there is. Uh, usually, uh, in kind of a straightforward transaction, you know, a lot of people say it's obvious who the acquirer is, especially mm-hmm. when um, a certain business pays cash or issues, um, you know, debt or equities or trade other assets or something to acquire a business. It may be more obvious there, uh, but there can be some complexities where. Mm-hmm. Um, who the acquirer actually is is not as clear. And this usually happens when there's an exchange of equity interest. So mm-hmm. one is exchanging equity of their company for the other. Um, you see this a lot of times in merger type transactions and you know companies that are looking for what's known as a reverse merger, which kind of flips the acquire acquiree concept on its head. Yeah. Um, you know those are those are people that are going to have to go through and evaluate a more, rigorous, you know, evaluation of the guidance for who the acquirer might be. And so there is specific guidance that 805 provides, which is helpful. You know, it gives a lot of criteria to walk through, but it's just something else to keep in mind. Another similar transaction you might see is that a lot of times companies will create like a new company Mm -hmm. that then kind of 
you know, acquires the business. And so, you know, there's some specific guidance about whether or not that new company is the acquirer or is it kind of a pass-through type entity or what happens. So there's, there's things like that that can add to the kind of headaches that you have to think through here. So just kind of keep in mind if, if your transaction is structured that way, that there's additional stuff to look through. I blame tax for that complexity. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the tax people trying to avoid the taxations. Okay, so the next step was acquisition date. Again, seems like it might be pretty straightforward, but there are always complexities. So how do you determine the acquisition date? Yeah, so acquisition date's always going to be, you know, kind of the date that control transferred. And so mm-hmm. normally it's the closing date. doesn't always end up being that way because, you know, in some circumstances it could be a couple days before or after the closing date. It kind of just depends on how the agreement's potentially structure, but generally it's the closing date. Mm -hmm. So this one, you know, you might have to do a little critical thinking here, but usually um, you can easily tell when control was transferred based on the wording of agreements. I will say that sometimes in practice, companies will use what's known as a convenience date. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a convenience date is to just help simplify the accounting. Like if you had a transaction that closed on September 29th, you might assume the transaction closed on September 30th so that you didn't have to close the books on the 29th to figure out like the values of everything. So, so long as that like kind of intervening period is not material, a lot of times, um, you know, companies and even their auditors are comfortable with companies using that convenience date, you know, assumption. Nobody wants to do a mid-month close. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, keep in mind, the convenience date should just be a few days. Like, obviously, uh-huh. you wouldn't want it to straddle accounting periods. Like, right. you know, if it was on December 30th, you wouldn't say we're going to push it to January 1st the next year. It would need to be in the same period. So just things like that to keep in mind. Yeah. And you could go backwards as well. Like, it closes September 3rd. You might move it to September 1st. Correct. Right. The next step is the recognition and measurement. And this is where most of our time in the accounting world takes place. A lot of our effort here. What goes on in this stage? Yeah. So this is definitely where I think the heavy lifting is, you know, especially when there's a ton of assets or ton of liabilities that are assumed. Um, It can actually become pretty complex. Um, You know, this is the area where companies are going to engage valuation specialists to help them out or outside consultants to potentially help them with some of this. Um, But essentially what happens here is that a company is recognizing all of their essentially assets or liabilities that meet the definition of an asset or liability. Mm -hmm. Keeping in mind that, you know, going through that process of identifying all your assets, you may also identify assets that the acquiree did not previously recognize. So mm-hmm. most commonly are intangible assets. Right. Um, the acquiree wouldn't have recognized them because they were internally generated, but you buying the business, you're kind of buying that intangible asset. So it could be things like brand names or customer relationships or mm-hmm. you know technology or something like that, that you're getting some value from and you're paying for that in the purchase price. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those assets would need to be recognized Um, So once all those assets are identified and all those liabilities are identified, they have to be generally fair valued on the acquisition date. Okay. So yeah, we don't carry over the book value of the previous owner. It becomes fair value. So how do we measure fair value for these assets and liabilities? Yeah. So fair value is, you know, the same concept of fair value you see in other areas of gap. So it's following the guidance in ASC 820. Um, it's basically the price that would be received 
for the sale of an asset or the price paid to transfer a liability in an orderly transaction between market participants. That's the kind of boilerplate definition of it. Obviously, there's tons of different approaches that you can take. Like I said, a lot of companies use valuation firms to help you know run different types of models. And then really the the fair value model or approach you might use is going to depend on the asset or liability, what makes the most sense or what's commonly used. Um, you know, there are cases, you know, you mentioned like book value. So sometimes for more shorter term, quick turnover type assets, like a company may make the assumption that the book value is equivalent or materially close to fair value. And so they'll carry that over. But you know, usually your longer lived assets, like your intangibles, your fixed assets, things like that, you know, they're going to require a little bit more rigorous look at fair value. And as always, there's usually exceptions to every rule. (laughs) Are there any exceptions to uh, fair value measurement rules? Yeah, there are. So generally, everything's at fair value with limited exceptions, and the guidance kind of speaks to those. Mm -hmm. Um, So some examples are like share-based payments, um, income taxes, contingencies, um, even like you know, kind of your your lease your leases under 842. You know, there's actually a standard update also that's you know proposed that's outstanding. I think the comment period just ended, mm-hmm. um, and it relates to contract assets and liabilities that are recognized under 606. Um, currently, those are fair value, but now they're looking to change the guidance that you would essentially use the values ascribed under 606. So that would be an exception to to fair value once that's finalized, but they haven't issued the final standard. So just something to keep in mind, because I think, you know, that a lot of times when, you know, when companies are acquiring other businesses, they are acquiring those contract assets and liabilities as well. And so there, there may be a change in how the accounting works in the future. You mentioned earlier, probably an area of focus would be intangible assets, and that might take a lot of time and effort. How would you determine what's an intangible asset and where would you kind of start when you're looking at those? Yeah, right. Like I said, this is probably where you spend the most amount of time here mm-hmm. is trying to think through those intangibles because those that meet, you know, the criteria to be separately identifiable are going to be measured separate from goodwill. Um, so gap really kind of gives two criteria that either can be met. Um, you know, either one can be met to um, meet the definition of an intangible asset. So there's this contractual legal criteria, mm-hmm. which basically says, you know, the asset arises from contracts or other types of rights that you may have. And then there's this other one known as the separability. So, you know, it may not arise from a contract or other, you know, legal rights that you have, but it could be something that is capable that you could sell it separately or transfer it or license it. Even if you don't plan to do that, that says that there's value there separate from goodwill. So if it meets either of those, um, it would be considered an intangible asset. And there's different types of intangible. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what you recognize in the transaction really just depends on like the type of business that you acquired, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking through what might be relevant to that, to that company. So it could be, you know, in some cases you may have marketing type intangibles like trade names or non-compete agreements. Other times you've got more contract related ones like leases and royalty agreements or licensing agreements. Um, you know, and other times it's more of a products and services type company. And so there's customers involved. So you may have customer relationships or customer lists that have value. Um, mm-hmm. So any types of those, you know, different types of intangibles could be recognized. Um, but you kind of have to critically think like, what is what is the business I'm taking over? And like, what what do we think there's value within that business that might be that might meet one of those two criteria? Okay. And are there ever any intangibles that would not get recognized? 
Yeah. And so in some cases, you know, you might have an intangible asset that you think of that just doesn't meet one of those two criteria. Uh-huh. Um, so there's not either contractual or it couldn't be sold separately. Um, so some common ones that often come up, especially in like retail type space or like mm-hmm. walk up customers, like that's not, you couldn't say that's a customer relationship because no one can really identify who those people are and right. you're probably able to sell that. Right. Um, an assembled workforce is another one. There's an, you don't separately identify that um, as an intangible asset. Those are excluded. Wow, it sounds like intangible assets would require a lot of time. It sounds like a significant undertaking. Are there any expedients or alternatives that have been provided to relieve companies as they go through this? Yeah, so there are. They, unfortunately, or fortunately, <laughs> however you look at it, um, only apply to private companies. So there's an alternative for private companies that they can elect, um, which basically they would not separately recognize and measure certain types of intangible assets, but instead mm-hmm. they would be subsumed into the the goodwill value that they record. Mm-hmm. One thing to keep in mind is that the alternative is limited to only customer-related intangible assets mm-hmm. um, that are not capable of being sold separately and um, non-compete agreements. Um, other types of intangible assets that are not customer-related or non-competes, so like trade names, for example, those things would still have to be accounted for separately and it would have to be valued separately. Um, one thing to keep in mind also with this election of this alternative is if you decide to do this one, you also have to elect there's a, a goodwill accounting alternative, which mm-hmm. basically provides an amortization of goodwill over a 10-year or shorter period. You would have to apply that alternative as well. So you can't pick and choose. It's right. a package deal. You can pick the goodwill one and not pick this intangible asset one, but you can't go the other way. Okay. So if you pick the intangible asset one because you're moving all those the value of those intangibles to goodwill, the standard is now saying you got to amortize that goodwill. So in reality, what you kind of end up with is, you know, you're still going to end up hitting an expense because an intangible asset in most cases is going to have a you know, finite life that you're going to amortize. But now instead of having to pull that value up separately and try to figure out what it is on the balance sheet, you can just amortize it within the total goodwill. Okay. So step four was goodwill, which we've just touched on. I remember goodwill from my accounting class days where it was just the plug. You know, you do all the math (laughs) and then you get a plug goodwill. Is that true? Is there more to it? And kind of how do we determine the actual amount of goodwill? Yeah. So maybe like, let's just talk about conceptually what is, what even is mm-hmm. goodwill? What does it mean? I mean, it, it basically is the value. It's an asset first, but it reflects the value that of the acquired kind of future economic benefits that a company um, will receive that are not separately identifiable. So a lot of times you can think of it as like the synergies that you're going to realize from the transaction and the future benefits of those synergies by acquiring this business. But yeah, more or less, when you think about goodwill, you know, it it really kind of is a plug. It's the residual kind of purchase consideration that's Mm -hmm. left once you've kind of allocated it to all the other assets or liabilities. Um, Whatever's left there is going to be goodwill Um, in most cases. You know, keep in mind that not every transaction results in goodwill. Sometimes all of it gets recognized to the assets and liabilities and you stop there. And then in some cases, you know, you almost end up with what's known as negative goodwill. So you pay a lot less, but the net assets you acquired is worth a lot more. Um, And so in that case, you know, you could end up with what's known as a bargain purchase, you know, because which, you know, you record as a gain, you know, assuming that 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 all holds up true. 
And then they get you with the taxes. <laughs> okay, so I've heard the term purchase price allocation thrown around a lot. Is that kind of what we're doing here with steps two and three? Three yeah. and four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and steps three, four. So in the recognize and measure assets, liabilities, and then kind of you know measure your goodwill or bargain purchase, you're essentially taking the total purchase consideration and mm -hmm. you're assigning it to all the fair values, in most cases, of the assets and liabilities. That's commonly known as the purchase price allocation or the PPA. And so it really comes down to just taking that total consideration, like I said, and kind of parsing it out. Okay, and what can be included in the total consideration transferred? Yeah, so you know, a lot of times it's very simple. It's like it could be just straightforward cash, right? And we you get love those. All cash deal, <laughs> very simple. Um, other times it can include you know other things like other assets. Mm -hmm. You know, you could transfer some fixed assets, or you know, maybe sometimes there's debt involved, some financing, some equity that might be issued to the seller. And then you know, in more complex situations, you know, particularly these days, I think they're doing a lot more creative financing for closing deals, and so. You know, you see a lot of things where there's contingent consideration, there's warrants, or there's other mm -hmm. options that are included in, in the deal structure. And so um, all of those elements can be considered part of the consideration. So just kind of look at, you know, the facts and circumstances for your, your particular transaction. So, you know, we have these huge, big, complex transactions going on, and there's other transactions kind of involved in them, maybe legal expenses, other things like that that get kind of caught up in the flow of funds. Can you give an overview of how we would account for those other items that might get mixed in with the transaction? Yeah, um, this for sure happens. You know, you'll get a funds, you know, what's known as like a funds flow, and mm -hmm. you'll see all these different wires and payments. And so you <laughs> just constantly you automatically backwards. assume that like all this cash being paid out must be part of this business combination. But mm -hmm. you really kind of have to look at the substance of like what's happening in there because there are oftentimes separate transactions that are just settled concurrently with the mm -hmm. with the acquisition itself that might need to be pulled out separately you know the most common one is transaction expenses mm -hmm. you know if you're you got legal or advisory or accounting or whatever type of fees that were attached were incurred by the acquirer that maybe just get paid out to those different parties as part of this transaction you know, those would have to be, the guidance tells you those have to be separately separately recognized from the business combination. So they're generally expensed as incurred, or if they relate to debt or maybe equity financing, you might capitalize them as kind of a debt issuance type thing or mm -hmm. an equity issuance type cost. Um, but yeah, you for sure need to think about like, are there, are there other transactions that are occurring within the business combination funds flow that don't particularly pertain to the business combination themselves? That's a that's a tricky thing to think through sometimes because it's not always obvious. Yeah. That reminds me of my closing costs for a house. You know, it's <laughs> all these other little fees built into the purchase of this asset. And they get you with tons of little things. <laughs> uh, earlier, you mentioned contingent consideration as an item that may be included in the purchase agreement. What is this? Can you explain it kind of like I'm a first grader? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, so contingent considerations, they're definitely more and more common. You see them in a lot of deals, really, mm -hmm. um, especially when there's a lot of uncertainty, particularly like what they're acquiring or what the what the seller is kind of conveying that the acquirer or the buyer is going to get. And so um, 
you know, there'll, there'll be these provisions, sometimes they're referred to as like earnout type things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're usually put in there in cases where um, usually the buyer and seller, they can't necessarily agree on the final purchase price. They can agree on some element of it, but they do want to close the deal. So they'll right. include these amounts to be paid in the future that are contingent. So that's mm-hmm. why it's contingent consideration. And it's yeah. either on a future event or a future condition being met that those get paid. You know, one thing to keep in mind, if you do have contingent consideration arrangements, you have to fair value those as well mm-hmm. in the in the purchase price allocation. And so, you know, it's either going to likely be recorded if it's consideration that gets paid to the seller, you know, likely you're either going to have a liability or in some cases you could have equity, you know, depending on whether you are going to pay them cash or give them additional equity or something to settle um, on the balance sheet. But there can also be contingent consideration where potentially the seller has to give money back to the buyer. And so in those cases, if there's an arrangement like that, there might be a need to recognize an asset like a receivable mm-hmm. from the seller for the fair value of that contingent consideration. It's important to really think about the classification too, just because the subsequent accounting is different. So mm-hmm. in cases where um, the contingent consideration is either an asset or a liability, you know, you fair value it on the opening balance sheet on that mm-hmm. acquisition date. Um, but then each reporting period, you have to refair value it. And so any changes in that value, um, those run through earnings. Okay. Whereas if it's equity classified, you just value it on the acquisition date and then you don't subsequently remeasure. There's another thing to keep in mind here too that, you know, we see this a lot for sure that kind of trips people up is mm-hmm. these contingent provisions may be payable to a person or I guess the seller in this case that also is going to maintain like their employment status with the company Uh and so you have to evaluate sometimes um, whether or not the contingent consideration is really related to the business combination Mm -hmm. or is it like some type of bonus that could represent like compensation right for post combination services so you know one kind of catch-all is that if the contingent consideration will only be payable and paid out if that person continues to work for the company. You know, Gap will tell you that that's not contingent consideration included right. in the, the business combination. It's really compensation for that person. But in cases where that's not true, there are other elements that the, the guidance does lay out, and you just kind of have to think through it based on your fact pattern to make sure that truly this contingent consideration is related to the business combination and not, not for some type of employment type structure like substance over form what are they actually trying to do here yep i know that very rarely does a company just pay the purchase price that's in the original agreement there's usually a bunch of different adjustments that come in or out can you discuss what is most commonly seen and how those are accounted for yeah yeah so there's you know a lot of times those purchase price amounts are determined based on you know kind of what the seller asserts are all the assets or liabilities that are included in the deal, but then mm-hmm. subsequent to closing the deal, there's often um, some type of like internal like audit checks that the the buyer might have a you know a third party audit firm or somebody do for them to check mm-hmm. to make sure that all that holds up, or there could be slight changes in those balances. And so the most common one you often see is like a working capital adjustment. Mm-hmm. It's in nearly every agreement. Um, 
you know, they'll have so many days after the deal to kind of come up with what this working capital adjustment could be. And it could be favorable to the buyer or seller or unfavorable. It just kind of depends on how it comes out. But, you know, working capital adjustments are almost always accounted for as an adjustment to the purchase consideration because it generally relates to amounts that existed as of the acquisition date. So Mm. even though there's some true ups that happen, um, those working capital adjustments, so long as they're done within the measurement period guidance, um, which is often the case because working capital adjustments have to usually be finalized, you know, I'd say in a month or two after the deal closes. Right. You know, it, it'll just be an adjustment to that purchase consideration. So the offset's usually to goodwill okay. in most cases. So if the purchase price was a million dollars, they have net liabilities of 100000 they're looking at an actual end of the day consideration of 900,000. Yeah, if uh, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll include like a target working capital, like what they what they agree mm-hmm. that it should be and then when the actual working capital gets determined, you know, whether it's you know short or greater than, then it becomes an adjustment to that purchase price. So if it depends if it's favorable to the seller, so if they're actually getting more assets than the target working capital you know, it's going to be additional consideration, whereas if it's, you know, less than, it's going to be, you know, reduction of that. Okay. Well, yeah, there's a ton to do for these acquisitions. And I imagine the people making the decisions aren't the ones doing the work. And so sometimes that timeline might be pretty close to reporting periods. Sure. What happens if they acquire this huge company, but they can't get everything done by the reporting deadline? Yeah, this is uh, kind of the un you know, one thing that I think keeps people up, especially when they're the doers of these deals. Um, Like you said, like the bankers and the deal makers, (laughs) they're not always worried about the accounting that just kind of follows the transaction itself. But, uh, you know, particularly if you got one that's near quarter end, if if you do quarterly reporting or, you know, if you only do annual reporting, but you have a Q4, late Q4 transaction, it can obviously put pressure on the team to try to get all the information and everything Mm-hmm. Um, finalize, you know, especially if you got specialists involved and you're just trying to mm-hmm. sort through all the details. But, you know, ASC 805 does provide a period of time to finalize the acquisition accounting. And so in cases where things may not be finalized, it does allow companies to provide provisional like amounts for things, you know, based on what they know at that point and essentially report that, you know, there'll be disclosures that it's provisional or the final accounting is incomplete. Mm. And then they have a period of time after that to kind of true up that accounting, um, which is known as the measurement period. Okay. Uh, The measurement period can't be any longer than one year, but it's basically supposed to be the point in time when you get, you know, if you have all the information and you got everything to finalize the amounts on the acquisition date, then your measurement period's technically closed but that, mm-hmm. uh, that timeline can't exceed a year. You know, any adjustments during the measurement period, um, they're recorded in the period that the adjustment's made, um, and they're determined basically as an adjustment to the initial acquisition accounting. You know, you gotta be careful here that if you're changing amounts, it has to be based on like information. It might be new information that you just received or something that you um, have worked through, but it had to relate to something that already existed right. as of the acquisition date. It can't be used as a tool to correct errors. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there's yeah. a little like, you know, you got to scrutinize it a little bit. And, you know, for sure your auditors will, if you have material measurement period adjustments, they're going to be looking at 
kind of you know what's the what's the substance here like what what is actually going on does this make sense does this meet truly what a measurement period adjustment is intended to do so you know just something to keep in mind is that you know if you if you are going to be making measurement period adjustments you know obviously the most common one is a working capital mm-hmm. most people you know don't turn their nose up to that but right. you know if you've got more material adjustments or things like that that potentially people weren't anticipating um, you know you may just want to look at closer whether or not is this fixing something that was incorrect or is it really you know new information that existed that we're getting right hopefully that helps save some of our listeners from nights staying up till 2 a.m <laughs> getting a little bit of grace period there um earlier we talked about bargain purchase options or nope these are just bargain purchases um <laughs> so, they're so similar getting get your leasing yeah i live in leases all day every day <laughs> So they're very uncommon. They're not something that we talk about very often. Sure. So what are some considerations to keep in mind if a company does find themselves with a bargain purchase? Yeah, so maybe talk about like what, when a company might even see one. So right. like, um, you know, like you mentioned, they're not, they're not as common. Um, you know, generally a bargain purchase is going to result when you've got a deal that may involve like a distressed seller that needs to maybe get some liquidity. Mm -hmm. So they're having to sell off parts of a business or a bunch of assets that represent a business. Um, And so there's a distressed sale, or maybe they just didn't go through a competitive bidding process and didn't get, you know, a lot of, you know, potential buyers involved in the transaction and they're selling it for less than what it's really worth. But whenever a company thinks they have a bargain purchase, they got that negative goodwill, the guidance will tell you that, hey, okay, before we, you know, hit the stop and recognize that gain for that goodwill, it tells you to basically go back Mm -hmm. and reconsider kind of those steps three and four. So making sure one, have you recognized all of your, you know, assets and liabilities? Have we measured them correctly? Mm -hmm. Is there anything else in the, you know, part of the consideration that you didn't include that maybe should have been included, like, you know, the contingent consideration mm-hmm. or other elements like that, that you, you know, you may want to look at that stuff again. And if after, you know, kind of rechecking those items, if you still end up with, you know, the negative goodwill, the bargain purchase, then, you know, you're required to recognize that bargain purchase gain immediately. Mm. Um, and then obviously there'll be, you know, just additional disclosures that I'll talk about the amount of the gain and where it was recorded and, you know, the reasons why um, that bargain purchase was a result of the transaction. So not common, but, you know, they do happen. So just, you know, keep that in mind, particularly if you, you're dealing with a deal that's distressed or, like I said, you know, not mm-hmm. a competitive bid. Yeah. I wonder if there was more this year because of all the financial distress from COVID. Who knows? Yeah. You never know. Maybe like- we can go look at the data later. <laughs> People shelling off companies to yeah. try to get some liquidity, or yeah. you never know. There's a, it's like I said, it's a, it's they do come through. So you know, it's important to make sure you understand the, the the accounting for that as well. Yeah. So we've covered all the definitions. We've gotten through all the different steps, and usually, kind of our last step in this whole process is financial reporting. So what are some things that a company should keep in mind in terms of? Uh, required presentation and disclosures in their financial reporting? Yeah, so the guidance, you know, it lays out a lot of requirements for disclosures on this. Like, obviously, you're going to talk about, 
you know, all the elements that we walk through in the acquisition method. So it's like who you acquired, how much of the, you know, the company you acquired, you know, because not all cases you acquire 100%. You know, what was the acquisition date? You're going to talk through all the, the liabilities and assets that were recognized, um, the fair values of those. You'll usually have a disclosure mm-hmm. and kind of outlining that more or less the purchase price allocation and mm-hmm. showing that residual goodwill or bargain purchase if you have that. Um, you'll disclose things about the consideration that was paid. So if you've got, if it's more than just cash, you know, you'll kind of list out all the different elements of consideration, even contingent consideration that was there. Um, there can be requirements around some of the fair value assumptions that you've got to include, especially when you're using like level three kind of fair value measures. Oh, you got to yeah. put some additional context around some of those items, you know, separate transactions that relate to the business combination. So transaction expenses you have to disclose and the amount of those transaction expenses. So things like that, you know, you know like I said, there's, you know, there's a whole list of things. I we didn't hit them all because um, I haven't committed them all to memory. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but for sure, definitely take a look through that because, you know, there's quite a few elements that could be relevant, but you know, if you've got a very straightforward transaction, you know, most of those things may not be as applicable mm-hmm. to you. So just kind of taking a look through that just to see what's required of you and how that presentation uh, and disclosure type stuff would work. Hmm. And just like with everything else, it, it just depends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, this was a huge topic and we just scratched the surface. A lot of complexity, a lot more we could dive into here. We'd encourage you to reach out to Embark for more conversations about business combinations, or you can check our blog. I'll try and link those in the show notes. And yeah, thank you for joining Adam and me today in our discussion. We hope you found this helpful and we'd like for you to connect with us on LinkedIn. It'd be pretty cool. We look forward to having you join us again on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.